now this is what my Prius sounds like with the catalytic converter stolen from it. Gabrielle is a single mother in Las Vegas. She's 28 years old, has three children, and works as a cocktail waitress in the small off-strip casino I work in. She's bubbly and pretty, so her tips usually make up for the dismal hourly wage, less than $10 an hour. But then the virus descended. The country tanked the collective response, and Nevada shut things down for a time. Gabrielle has been clinging to the fact that the corporation that owns her casino, while defiantly non-union, opted to pay its employees consistently through the 78 days of hard shutdown, sans tips, of course. But with the opening and subsequent bar shutdown, business has been limping forward. Now the schools in Vegas are going to be online only. Her daycare person is long, no longer comfortable watching her kids, especially since Gabrielle decided to get a COVID test. It was negative, but the whiff of possibility scares the shit out of some people. She used to be a nurse, but like so many who come to Vegas, her prior experiences meant next to nothing. That's something they don't tell you when moving out here. Your work experiences, education, and resume don't mean much. You're a tourist until you aren't, and stripping down and starting from scratch is the required path. The smaller industries in Vegas circle the wagons and block those who come in from bigger cities from access. It isn't so much snobbery as a protective measure because most people aren't looking to make a life here, but to strike it rich and move on. Gabrielle has been paying her dues for a few years. When the state slowly opens casinos yet still has the bars closed, she makes her money and looks for ways to game the system. Like I said, she takes that COVID test, but without symptoms because she knows that the results will take 10 days and she can't come into work until she brings in the paperwork. Thus, two weeks of figuring out the bizarre Zoom home school situation. At 47, white, shaggy in that Wayne Campbell still living in his mom's basement sort of way, Del Mar is what is called a long-term hotel resident. He'd been squatting at the Days Inn off of Tropicana and I-15 for 25 days. His room looks like a dorm room from the 1980s. He even has posters up on the walls. Delmar was sacked from his Reno-based truck driving gig. No long-term contract, no unemployment benefits, no medical. He hitchhiked down to Vegas after a couple of months doing pickup handyman work despite statewide shutdown protocols. He figured he'd take his meager savings and gamble some of it to see if he could strike some gold. He did because he was smart enough to play conservatively and has been using his winnings to pay his hotel bill. 
He confesses at one point that he may have a drinking problem as he spends every day sleeping and watching television and every night playing slots and drinking comped liquor until early the next day. He asks me for resume tips and assures anyone who will listen that he has a job in Reno that will pay him $87,000 a year, but he has to get there first. He gets temporarily banned from the casino because one night he brings his electric guitar and amp to the sports book and starts playing for tips. The graveyard manager squashes that, but he decides to ditch his amp and walk around the slot floor playing acoustically until the manager has had enough. He almost get ev- he gets evicted from the hotel when he books, hooks up his amp in the pool area and does the same. Despite the moratorium on home evictions in Nevada, Lisa and her boyfriend Rick are homeless. Knowing that the couple didn't have the money or education to fight the eviction, their landlord of three years waited until they were out one evening, had a crew clear out their one-bedroom apartment, and change the locks. They came home to everything they owned on the sidewalk, with some of the more pawnable items gone. With nowhere else to go, they loaded up Rick's pickup with what they could salvage and book a week at the hotel. She tells me a week is all they can afford, and hopefully that will give them time to fix their situation. Rick is fixated on the landlord and has so much anger at the eviction he spends most of his time ranting on his phone and drinking Michelob Ultra in cans. Lisa drinks too, but she tells me this is new to her. She never used to drink. These days, she relates, she can't afford her antidepressants, so booze will have to do. I tell her that alcohol is in itself a depression. Depressant, and she she shrugs. Before things were shut down, she worked as a blackjack dealer at MGM. Rick has been in between jobs for a year and change. They walk across the street to the gas station to buy their beer. They don't gamble, and the prices at the casino gift shop are marked up too much. Gabrielle recognizes that the corporation took care of her during the shutdown, but with three kids, she's wholly focused on her family. She decides to apply for FMLA, Family and Medical Leave Act, benefits to carve out another paid two weeks at home. She's healthy, so she decides to get her six-year-old son circumcised as a medical reason. Both her doctor and HR approve it, but her vacation time is used to pay the two weeks. When she returns, the bars are open again, but the schools are still closed. She hasn't paid her rent in four months. Rock, meet hard place. Del Mar, on day 28 of his stay, is told that he has to vacate the property for 24 hours. He has to take all of his belongings and leave. He can come back and rebook, but Nevada Nevada state law states that if the hotel allows him to stay 29 days, he becomes a legal tenant and cannot be evicted without court intervention, so he has to go temporarily. He doesn't have a car, so he loads up what he can carry, stashes the rest behind a dumpster off property, which will almost certainly be picked through and then trashed before his day is finished, and decides to go spend the night on the strip. He doesn't come back. After the week is up, Lisa and Rick load up his truck. They have no plan. They have little money. Rick swears he can get work up in Utah, but the look in Lisa's eyes says that she's heard that song and dance before. Without many choices, they decide to drive to Utah and see what happens. The world at this point has been in pandemic for 205 or so days, with 215,000 Americans dead from the virus. This is over 1,000 COVID deaths per day. This is just slightly worse than if two fully loaded 747s crashed into the sea or a mountain every single day for 205 days. For Gabrielle Delmar, 
Lisa and Rick, things weren't gravy before having to wonder if a random encounter with some idiot who refuses to wear a mask in public will result in infection and potential death. Combining the hooded figure of the Corona Reaper with the sudden lack of economic possibility has created an uncertainty of purpose, a lack of clarity, and an impenetrable fog through which to navigate. There are still questions about past mismanagement, she wrote. Oh, that's right. In 2003, that thing with the city and crooked landlords and the theater on Halstead in Chicago happened. You know, then the extramarital affair with the guy who got married to someone else and the subsequent divorce in between was the stepping down from the theater because I was tired and fat and smoked too much, which may or may not have had anything to do with the divorce or the extramarital affair and the new job at public radio. Then approximately eight years ago, I wrote my definitive accounting of what happened that fall of 2003. I wrote it for a show called Guts and Glory. I read it. I recorded it. I've read it and listened to it and shared it a number of times since that original 2012 inaugural performance. For me, at the very least, it's become the official version of the story. There are still questions about past mismanagement, she wrote, and it hit me in the soft underbelly. The official version is only that for me. She has her own version. My ex-wife has hers. The three groomsmen all have their versions. People who were not even there, who are a part of our theater at the time, have versions. I once found a note from Andrew Alexander recently selling Second City, but at that following that fall, it was an actual note from Andrew accompanying a newspaper clipping from the Sun-Times that accused me of forgery. He has a version of this incident, and he's only met me once. I see a photograph of my ex-wife and I standing outside the theater in front of a cease and desist sign. We both look beleaguered but hopeful. We're wearing our winter coats. We're not holding hands. Across the photograph is painted in a light cursive script, C'est ne pas votre bay. I see a watercolor of myself in the theater the night we voted to leave as painted by one of the many who took advantage of the venue provided but had relatively little skin in the game. One of the actors, like who she who jolted this whole thought process to life with her casual mention of past mismanagement, who showed up to play but got rarely stuck around to mop the stage or help out with the less showy parts of the day-to-day business. In the watercolor, I'm pale and streaked with exhaustion and tears and the self-pity only someone feeling betrayed by close friends can exhibit. I'm in a chair on stage. There are others in chairs, but theirs are set apart from mine. Along the bottom of the watercolor, in calligraphic lettering, reads, Say ne pas votre vie. I see a courtroom sketch, like the ones you used to see on TV because cameras were not allowed in courtrooms, sketched by someone unknown to me or anyone associated with the theater. I'm sitting alone, waiting. I'm weary and pissed and prepared to be told the worst because at that point in the tale, the only worst came with regularity. Instead of a signature at the bottom, yup, in French, this is not your life. Perhaps the desire to have an omnipotent God floating above and beyond us is the desire to have some being see and record the objective truth, untainted by human memory or the traps of ego or 
of believing that which that which you choose to believe rather than what is actually true the idea that somewhere there is an accounting for our mistakes and misdeeds or silent moments of suffering or failure the betrayals and disloyal uh, the, the the hidden opinions expressed in odd looks or coded phrases by someone or something untouched by our daily grind the days when i busted my balls to put up obscure theater with the company i founded in 1992 are long gone i spent seven seven years telling stories on stage in chicago i listened to hundreds of stories as well as told them and it occurred it occurs to me that in each and every one of them each one of them could have that magritte line is magritte-esque line etched into them say ne pas votre vie this is not your life. Like the painting in of the pipe that is not a pipe, each story is not actually your life, but a representation of a piece of your life that is only from your vantage point and subject to the falsehoods that accompany the bizarre byline of memory. That story about your grandma and the woman who tried to punish you and she stepped in and whomped her ass, it's an excellent tale, but I'm guessing the woman whomped probably has a different angle on it. That time you stole money from your bank job and the manager helped you out of the jam, your coworker is likely to tell it in a, in a different way. The dog you bought your wife before you got divorced, she ain't telling it, so people see you as the beleaguered party. The truth, with a capital T, is an elusive and non-existent entity. No matter how objective we try to be, there simply isn't a beast called the objective truth that exists outside of legend and in the minds of the most arrogant. Our capacity for finding, telling, and believing the truth is as malleable and plastic as a Stretch Armstrong from the days of my childhood. The simple reality is that stories, no matter how well meant they are, are stories. Regardless of our commitment to telling some sort of objective truth, the fact is that eyewitness testimony is the least accurate, and our ability to fabricate our memories to paint a narrative we think is best as human, as voting with our emotions and buying shit because you know, we're afraid of death or not having sex. Say na pa votre vie. One of the storytelling experiments I drummed up in my brain and put up on a stage in Chicago was called Identity Flip. Started as a joke between Scott Whitehair and myself as we brainstormed shows we'd never do, the idea of identity and how essential or unimportant it all is niggled into my brain pan until the show blossomed up from the bad idea to a truly interesting and thought-provoking experience. We performed 16 shows, and each one opened up concepts that were anticipated and surprised me in the way all good experiments should, I think. Watching straight white men and straight black women switch their personal narratives for about eight minutes, a pop realized, just reveals how different our life experiences can be, but also how incredibly similar our base reactions to the things life throws at us are. Boomers and millennials flipping was hilarious and moving in turn. More than anything, the performances confirmed for me that identity is a choice we make based on a host of factors. 
Speaking with a young black woman after the show one night, she told me how she was black but raised by a white couple and that this confused things for her as she moved to Chicago. This conversation was inspired by a story of a woman feeling she was white in the Dominican Republic, Dominican Republic, but was black in Chicago, as read by the very white man in the room. One of the su- surprises for me was that in curating the evening, I was very conscious of presenting as much a fully Chicago face on the stage as possible. But each white male I put on stage had been so different in how he wore that identity. Each black woman I asked to perform was so completely unique in how they owned both their blackness and their womanhood. Having these stories told by other people instantly opened up the lens of identity and lay bare the crazy contradictions and importance of these labels. Identity is that which we find our own self-worth. It is the moniker we decide is most representative of our essential I being professionally successful, being highly educated, making a lot of money, being an excellent parent, being pious and faithful in a chosen religion, being socially and or sexually popular and desired, being physically attractive or beautiful. It includes areas that we have no control over, but decide to embrace our skin color, our gender, our sexual orientation, our physicality. Race and gender and physicality are born in traits, but the choice is not to erase them but to either embrace the stereotypes laid upon skin color, sexuality, and disability, or buck those stereotypes. Culture, hairstyle, language, the trappings of the outward display of identity are all conscious choices. What you choose indicates what you value in life. Jeff grew up without, without money, without the things money could buy, without a sense of security that, that a bit more cash in hand would provide. He came to value the earning of money as a priority and built his identity around being a breadwinner. He invested in his portfolio, worked hundreds of hours, 100 hours a week. No amount could ever be enough. He wore the clothes most associated with wealth and power. When Jeff lost his job in an economic downturn, Jeff's very identity came into question and his sense of loss and confusion spun him into a deep depression. Jeff chose to value money over everything else, and when it dried up, he was as, he was as a man without a country, a ship without a sail. As the money dried up, so did his self-worth. For much of the last two decades, I wrapped my identity up in the angry white guy thing. You know, it was a satirical comment when on the stereotype of the NASCAR-loving, flag-waving, trucker-hat-wearing rubes I grew up around. It was a badge I wore, an identity I strove to project. And sure, I'm still frequently pretty angry. That's the secret, replied Banner. I'm always angry. But those who know me intimately were privy to the other facets of the fundamental me that I chose to keep discreetly under the uniform. Around the point that it became obvious that Trump was up at that time a possible for real candidate and the white nationalists started coming out of the woodwork and from under the fetid rocks they'd been hiding under, I suddenly found myself questioning both the humor of this identity as well as what it was doing for me in life. The black nerd who goes to Comic-Con and dresses up like a superhero. Hero. The young woman wholly soaked in the semi-mincendry of fifth-wave feminism who loves no one more than her Republican father. The middle-aged man who becomes a bodybuilder and has the body of a 25-year-old and the head of Clint Eastwood's leathery ball sack who collects Hummel figurines. The suicide girl who is also a child psychologist. The undocumented immigrant who runs for public office. The frat bro who works at the animal shelter. The social justice warrior who loves Judy Bloom books. The poet who won't miss a Michael Bay film. 
the rock drummer who has five cats, the sensitive writer who loves crap TV, the hipster guy with a beard that looks like the Brillo-like asshole of a grizzly bear who happens to be a surgeon. Underneath each of these identities is more, more person, more depth, more complexity. One side of the conversation will tell you that identity politics is a bane on society. The other side will tell you it's about fucking time. Like all things, the truth is somewhere in between as each of us is not one thing or the other thing. In the fight against the binary nature of our snake brains, the, the diversification of our identities is the road to presenting ourselves as genuine people rather than cartoon cutouts of the stereotypes so easily digested. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly podcast featuring stories and thoughts from an arrogant, overly confident white guy. Lots of episodes were recorded while I was living in Chicago, and now I'm in Las Vegas. Check out donhall.vegas for updates and subscribe at Apple Podcasts.